Good morning. Can everybody hear me okay? Great. So if you still need to, grab your coffee or whatever else you need, and we're going to talk together today a little bit about suffering and what that means uh, in our lives as God's people. I'm an avid news, uh, I'm an avid consumer of news. Those of you who know me know that I probably read between four to six newspapers a day, uh, all of them online, and follow about four or five networks from the left to the right and everything in between from different countries. Um, it's just become something of a desire of mine to keep myself informed about the macro issues in our world and the micro issues that affect us. And in that process yesterday, I'm a regular reader of the National Post. And if we can have that article up on the screen, that would be great. Uh, <clears throat> the National Post is one of the two national Canadian newspapers, Globe and Mail being the other. And I follow uh, both of them, but National Post, Post more so. And yesterday, he came across an article by a gentleman by the name of Jonathan Kay. He's a periodic contributor in the comments section to the Post. And he was speaking on something that has been gracing the screens of our television sets, what happened in Manchester just a few days ago. An episode that shook the United Kingdom. It's the biggest terrorist threat in many, many years that they've had in a UK's second largest city. And most of the terror actions so far have been focused on the city of London. And of course, I know you've all heard by now, and if you haven't, perhaps you haven't watched the news or read the newspaper, but this was at a, a concert attended by uh, children, preteens, and teenagers. And right at the end of the concert, a terrorist in, affiliated with ISIS detonated an improvised explosive device, killing over 20 children and teens and injuring almost 60 others. And this episode, of course, shocked Manchester as a city, the United Kingdom as a country, and shocked the world. The British Prime Minister, a couple of days later, raised the terror threat in the United Kingdom to its highest level, anticipating and having intelligence of another imminent attack on the British people. Today, she brought that terror level down one notch uh, from critical to severe. And now armed police guard every train station, every sporting venue, every public theater, every main square with semi-automatic assault rifles. The city, the country, is in a state of virtual military lockdown. But in the wake of all of this, fear and explosion and terror, it produced suffering. And the article that was written in the post in this commentary piece by Jonathan Kay, I thought was a unique approach that most of our mainstream media never touches on. The title of the article was, In a Largely Godless World, It's Hard to Know What to Say When Tragedy Strikes. I'm going to read the first couple of paragraphs as an introduction to my thoughts this morning around the issue of suffering in our world. Terrorism blows up beliefs alongside bodies. Our whole liberal system of thought is centered around the idea that societies can be improved, perfected even, through education and science. But events such as the Manchester area bomb arena bombing remind us that in critical ways, nothing has changed since the era of Viking raids. And then when we promise our children we will keep them safe, we are speaking in white lies. Two months ago, I took my 11-year-old girl to her first concert, a 14-year-old YouTuber named Johnny Orlando. On Monday, after hearing the news from England, she told me, I don't want to go to concerts anymore. No doubt. She will eventually change her mind, but in the moment, it was heartbreaking. This discussion was not the first of its kind. On Christmas Eve last year, a boy at my daughter's school was killed, along with his parents and brother, when a fire destroyed their cottage on Stony Lake, northeast of Toronto. The news came in on her social media after she opened her gifts, and I realized that I hadn't the slightest idea how to talk to my children or anyone about death. Not so long ago, public grieving for the victims of bombings, of a bombing or a fire, would be tempered by the consolations of heaven, where the souls of the departed would one day be joined by those of loved ones. Even if many Christians did not privately believe in the afterlife, the publicly expressed idea that part of us would survive death made the process of mourning more bearable. 
At the very least, it gave us something hopeful to say to one another after we'd exchanged grave looks and shaken hands. We have preserved a few pale echoes of this religiosity, such as in editorial cartoons that mark the passing of famous politicians and athletes by showing them making jokes with St. Peter. But otherwise, God is now excluded from public grieving. Even as early as 1998, Christian clergy who spoke at a memorial service for the 229 victims of a Swiss air flight that had crashed off the Nova Scotia coast were instructed by federal protocol officers not to mention Jesus or the Bible in their remarks, lest the audience become uncomfortable. So our world is faced with suffering. It's inevitable. It's unavoidable. It invades our lives, like the improvised explosive device invaded the concert in Manchester. At every turn, we will encounter it. And so those introductions tell us that there is this grappling that seems to be going on in our culture, in our society, with bad things that happen, the Manchester bombing, and how do we respond afterwards? So how do we navigate this reality of human suffering that will present its, itself to us at expected and unexpected times? What we do with suffering will elucidate and illuminate and indicate the nature of our soul and inform the very path of our lives. So today when I had a chance to speak with you about suffering, these thoughts came to my mind. And so I've entitled my thoughts today, Suffering, the Crucible of Kingdom Maturity. And I have two passages that I'll be referring to throughout the, me the message today. One in Isaiah chapter 53, and the other one more indirectly in Matthew 27. And Matthew 27, of course, is the New Testament fulfillment of the, 23rd, of the 53rd chapter rather, of Isaiah. And in Isaiah, we have the prediction of the suffering servant, the suffering Messiah. Next slide, please. It's been said that there are two distinct paths toward maturity. A seminary professor of mine in my graduate studies in counseling psychology uh, was talking to us about how people mature. And in this context, he was speaking of emotional, social, spiritual maturity. And he said after his many, many years of practice and ministry and his extensive education in the area, he had come to the conclusion that there were basically two paths that people could take toward maturity. And in this context, we're talking about Christian maturity, spiritual maturity. But it certainly applies more broadly to any maturity in life. So if someone doesn't express a Christian faith, I would say these comments speak to people who have matured emotionally and create a depth in their life in general terms. And he said he had observed two distinct paths that people could take, most, all people, he said, could be lumped he asserted, his preposition was, that all people could be grouped into these two uh, groups. And I'm going to describe the first grouping for you, uh, and then we'll talk about um, some, uh, the number of people in that grouping, but for now I'm going to describe it. So here's the first path of maturity that some people take. A person who would be traveling on this path would reach a point in your life wherein you would awaken one day and resolutely determine that you will dedicate your whole self by attaining deep personal and spiritual maturity. Nothing gets in your way. And after an unrelenting, committed journey, you all of a sudden arrive at a point of deep personal maturity one day. That's path one. I want you to hear it again. Path one, you can listen to both paths and see where you fall. You reach a point in your life wherein you awaken one day and resolutely determine that you'll dedicate your whole self to attaining deep personal maturity. Nothing gets in your way. And after an unrelenting journey, you arrive at a point of deep personal maturity. Now, he gave us some statistics about his analysis of what percentage of the population end up in one of these two paths. And in this group, here's the number. It's 0.1% of the population <laughs> travel this path. Now, I'm sure this group here would make up that 0.1%. Like you, probably of all the Christians in Langley, or maybe even the Lower Mainland, or probably the province of British Columbia, most of them would be found at Jericho Ridge, I'm sure, because Brad and, and Wally and everyone, the elders have done a fantastic job, and the teaching has been stellar, and you, have, you are just those kind of people. You woke up one day, and you decided, I'm going to get really mature, 
and you let nothing get in your way, and you're here today, and so I apologize, because almost everything I say will be irrelevant to you. But just in case there's one or two of you who aren't in that group, my remarks will be relevant. And perhaps you can teach the other ones, the, all the rest of you who are on this 0.1%, not even 1%. So let's look at the second path. For those one or two people in the group here who might be relevant to this group, listen carefully. And for those of you who have already attained maturity, you can understand our struggle at least. The second path. Life kicks you around really hard. It really hurts. You hate it. You resist it. You don't know which end is up in the middle of your pain. You struggle with God, sometimes even hate Him. You utter prayers that are often not answered, in your estimation. And then, once you feel you have experienced way more suffering than can possibly be fair, feel weak, vulnerable, and maybe teetering on the dark edge of despair. At that moment, somewhere inside your soul, you realize you have taken at least a step in the direction of kingdom maturity. Let me read it again for that small number of people who are in this group. Life kicks you around really hard. It really hurts. You hate it. You resist it. You don't know which end is up in the middle of your pain. You struggle with God, sometimes even hate him. Utter prayers that are often not answered in your estimation. And then once you feel you have experienced way more suffering than you can possibly be fair, you feel weak, vulnerable, and maybe teetering on the dark edge of despair. At that moment, somewhere inside your soul, you realize you have taken at least a step in the direction of kingdom maturity. That's path two. And let's look at the statistics on that one. Well, you can do the math. That's 99.9% .9 of the population. So the analysis obviously is made tug in cheek. I'm not really sure that that 0.1% exists. Um, I know there are people who are absolutely convinced they're in that 0.1%. And there are people who would self-describe that they're in group one. That I do know. And there are even theological systems that would say there are things you can do to be in that group. Prayers you can pray, spiritual gifts you can have, levels of holiness you can attain, a series of Christian behaviors that could place you there. There are systems of theology that would assert we could all get from group two to group one. That I know. And I know there are Christians who believe they are in group one. That I know. But I'm not convinced anybody really is this side of heaven. My Bible says, now we see dimly but then we will see fully. And so this side of heaven, as we are expelled from the garden, I think we're pretty much in group two. So let's go to the next slide and talk about what we're talking about. I gotta tell you what we're talking about. I'm gonna say what I'm gonna say. Because in the, in the phrase, or in the introduction to my comments, I talked about how suffering was the crucible of spiritual maturity and kingdom maturity. So what does that mean? Well, if you want to understand what English words go to mean, go to a good old thing like the Oxford English Dictionary. I go to the Oxford English Dictionary because the English know English, and Oxford is a place that is renowned for their English studies program. Not that Merriam-Webster is bad, but I tend to prefer the Oxford Dictionary. And let's break apart what suffering is in the English language. It has different connotations in the Greek and in the Hebrew, but for now, let's look at what these terms mean in our own language. So Steph, the Oxford English Dictionary says that suffering is a state of under, undergoing pain, distress, or hardship. That makes sense, right? No surprises there. It's the state of undergoing pain, distress, or hardship. What is a crucible? A crucible is a situation of severe trial, or in which different elements interact, leading to the creation of something new. So notice the second part of the definition of a crucible. It's a situation in which different elements interact with each other. So one thing rubs against another. One thing bumps into another. One thing intermingles with another. There are two distinct things or processes happening. That's a crucible. And when two things smash into each other, something comes out the other end. That's a crucible. It's a situation of severe trial. And lastly, what is mature? Well, you could just say, that's me. And you could, we'd have the perfect definition, right? Because we know that, that we, again, Jericho is in that, that first group. So we got tremendous illustrations of this here right in the, uh, in the congregation this morning. Here's what Oxford says, though. Of a person or thing become fully grown or developed. And of course, we can talk about maturity. Some people who are getting older call themselves mature adults. You know, that's a phrase that's used. Instead of saying you're old, 
They just say you're a mature adult. Uh, they can talk about you maturing and your knowledge in a field of study. But the concept here is that you become fully grown or fully developed. So a mature adult is someone who's, I guess, fully developed in getting old. A mature person in the field of engineering is uh, someone who has extensive knowledge and training and experience in engineering. But it's a concept of being fully grown or fully developed. And so when we talk about suffering and how it becomes this crucible to create kingdom maturity, what we're saying is, if you follow my premise, and by the end of this talk, buy into my premise, you're going to understand that the only route to kingdom maturity is through this crucible of suffering. I know it's not a good news story that I'm telling you this morning, except that it is, and you'll hear why at the end. There's a whole bunch of good news around this. But for now, it's the hard news. It's the way of the cross. It's the way our Lord traveled. And the only way he attained the status of sitting at the right hand of God the Father through the path of suffering. In my trips to Israel twice now, I saw well and vividly the path to suffering that our Lord took. And it was only then that he ascended to the right hand of God the Father so that one day he could return in glory and in power. Suffering was his path. And suffering was the path of the people of God from time immemorial. Read the Old Testament from beginning to end and you'll see this repeated time and time again. So I have three points I want to make today. Three things I want you to kind of go away with. So you're taking notes, jot them down. Here's the first one. The path to maturity will inevitably lead through the valley of suffering. And by the way, these comments that I'm making today, I believe emerge from the pages of Scripture. I believe they're biblically sound. And I believe they are consistent with my own journey and my own spiritual experience. And I'm going to be talking today about my own journey a great deal as I illustrate these points because... If I just give you theological information, you'll nod and smile and say, that was theologically correct. Thank you, preacher. You'll go home, and it will have touched your mind, but I'm not so sure how deeply it will have touched your heart. And like it or not, most of the decisions we made are made and influenced deeply by our emotions and by our soul. Or as a psychologist want to call it, our psyche, which really comes from the Greek word for our soul. And so, Isaiah 53 Verse 3, and this is taken from the New International Version. It's interesting how the uh, New Living Translation puts it. Uh, both are accurate. They're just um, trying to, to capture different angles of the original language. NIV says, a man, speaking of the suffering servant who was to come. Now, this is Isaiah, pre-Jesus, pre-the Messiah, anticipating the day when the Messiah, the people of Israel, were waiting for would come. And he was, he was, he was uh, rolling out that explanation. He was unpacking what this deliverer, this savior, this Messiah would look like, this deliverer of God's people would look like. And it was a very oddball description. He says that he would be a man of suffering and familiar with pain. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. New Living Translation says he would be a man of sorrows. A man of sorrows. So interesting. They are sort of interchanging sorrows and suffering here. So does that mean to have suffering, you have sorrows? You are sorrowful? What do we do with suffering when it comes across our path? I remember um, a business colleague of mine telling me something, um, and I remember hearing it earlier, years earlier from a theologian, he said, if you want to understand where a man's affections are, if you want to understand where a man's heart is, what really drives him, look at two things. And I've I agreed with those, and I'm going to add a third. He, the saying I inherited was, if you want to know a man's affections and where his drive and his heart is, look at what he does with two things, his money and his time. Where does he spend both? Then you'll really get at probably what's going on in his heart, what's at the top of his priority list. Second, the third thing I would add to the list if you want to know where a man or a woman's heart is, look at what they do with suffering. Look at how they um, cooperate with, navigate, react to, respond to suffering. It will tell you a lot about who they really are. And to give you some illustrations of this, I want to talk about the two people who were closest to me in my life, my mom and my dad. 
they were people who encountered immense suffering in their life. I'll talk first about my mom and then secondly about my dad. They both showed this differently to me. But in ways I didn't fully appreciate until I became much older as a kid, uh, I didn't really get what it was all about. It was either confusing, irrelevant, or frustrating. But years later, I looked back and understood that these people understood suffering and learned something about navigating it. Remember that Jesus was described here as a man of suffering or a man of sorrows and familiar with pain? My mother was a woman who had a lot of suffering and became very familiar with pain. At birth, she was abandoned by her birth mother, who was likely a prostitute. My mother was born with venereal disease, syphilis. It was highly dangerous. It was transmitted to her from her birth mother as a baby. So she's born with syphilis in the province of Quebec, a very rigid Catholic province at the time. We're talking 70-odd years ago. In that day and age, there was a rule in Quebec that stipulated if a baby was born with a communicable disease, like syphilis, that they were considered unadoptable. And so she was placed in an orphanage. And then shortly thereafter, began a journey through about 13 or 14 different foster homes during her childhood. Finally landing in one at age 16, where she stayed for two years. But all the other ones were six months to a year in duration. At every foster home, she was abused, physically, sexually, emotionally, abandoned, and treated as subhuman. She found no security. She found no sense of home. She found no sense of belonging. She was called names. She was rejected. She suffered. Every conceivable form of suffering a human being could suffer. And this woman now was my mother, the woman raising me. She now had to put her task to raising three boys in a poor part of inner city Montreal with a husband from Newfoundland who had a grade eight education, who was a good and gentle man, but she had very little to work with. Two of her sons were born with a visual disability. And besides all the economic challenges and physical challenges, she had the psychological and emotional demons of her life of abuse to contend with. Every day she rose from bed to raise her family. This was a woman who lived with suffering. The psychologists and psychiatrists of the day knew not how to deal with her. She received every psychiatric diagnosis under the sun, from multiple personality disorders to schizophrenia to manic depression and a few others. Frankly, they didn't really know, except that she was really messed up and really hurting. Some said it was a chemical imbalance in her brain because of the syphilis that wasn't treated properly. Others said it was psychologically induced from environment. Others said they weren't sure, and others said both. She spent many, many weeks in and out of psychiatric wards attempting suicide repeatedly during my childhood because the demons in her head would not be quieted. The demons of suffering and pain that, that surrounded her life wouldn't go away easily or quietly. But I can tell you, as a woman who had to carry all of that, she was absolutely brilliant. She had mind sharper than most, was articulate and well-spoken and unafraid, to confront anyone who needed to be confronted, to advocate for her children in ways that few parents would. And when, as a young child, my brother Paul, who's eight years older than me, was brought as a child with albinism, who had low vision, he was legally blind, just like me. And when my mom realized his eyes weren't focusing well and he couldn't see the storybooks, she brought him into the eye doctor and said, my baby's eyes aren't really developing well. I think he has a problem with his vision. And the eye doctor said, this child is an albino. He's blind. He's pretty much not going to have much of a life. There's not really a lot of hope. We can't fix this with surgery. There is a sheltered workshop where blind people make brooms in Montreal. Put him there, and that will be his life. So my mother passively took Paul and put him in the school for the blind making brooms. Right? Wrong. She said no. And other few choice words I won't say in church. <laughs> to this doctor. Blankety blank, 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 doctor, I will do whatever the blank I want with my son. Have a nice day. And the door slammed behind her. And she said, not for my son. And so she went to another doctor who was useless. And finally to a third who said, yes, your child has a vision problem. And yes, it will be challenging. And yes, we can't fix it with surgery. But with the right assistance, the right training, the right visual aids, he can do well. And she said, I like that doctor. That's the one I'm picking. 
And so Paul went on, of course, to finish high school, finish his undergraduate degree, take his master's degree, became a systems analyst for the federal government for Syncrude Oil, was ordained to the ministry, built a global business with 600 employees. Far cry from sitting in the shelter workshop making brooms. Why? Because he had a mother who believed in him. What an odd choice of a mother to produce such a successful son. She was full of suffering and familiar with sorrows. There's nothing in her story that should end the way it does. There's nothing in her story that on the surface should produce a son like that. And then another and then another. All three of us had good fortune in our lives in a variety of arenas under her leadership. So whatever happened with how she somehow processed suffering was different than the norm. I can't explain it entirely, except to say, my mother somehow, it seems, made a decision. She was keenly aware of all of her suffering. It drove her to attempt suicide a number of times. The horrific memories of her abuse were too much for her, too much even for the medications to quiet sometimes, I think. And so at the end of a rope, she would want to stop the pain. But then when she would come around again, she would realize, I have these three boys and this husband, and God's blessed me. And at a 20-year-old woman, she came to Jesus at a Billy Graham crusade before she met my dad and before she had her children. And somehow, deep down inside, she knew, and she believed, it seemed, that this suffering must have a purpose. This suffering must have a meaning. That suffering could not be the end of the story for her. I don't know why, I don't know how, except that she was a woman of courage and faith. And somehow she decided to do something very out of the ordinary with suffering. And I witnessed that in her. I witnessed a woman who struggled, but a woman who believed that she could somehow move forward despite the hand that she was dealt. And I saw my father do the same, born and raised in Newfoundland, the poorest province in our country, in a family of 10 kids. Didn't have anything. The boys left home after grade eight and moved to the mainland, which, by the way, is anywhere except Newfoundland. <laughs> and he decided to get a job at a paint factory first. And with, he rented a tiny little room. And with every dollar that he didn't need to pay his rent, guess what he did? He sent it home. All the boys did that. The girls stayed home and helped in the house. And then he met my mom. She was going to training to become a Salvation Army officer and got pregnant. And that's a whole other story I don't have time for. But she gave up the baby for adoption, and that baby had a beautiful life. And a few years ago, I met him, my half-brother. But she pursued and persevered through the suffering, as did my father through the challenges of his upbringing in a poor, challenged family in Newfoundland raised in the Salvation Army to know that Jesus loved him. He became a man controlled by a drinking problem who faced his own demons of despair but always knew Jesus loved him and that it was always an end in sight and a purpose to suffering that had a bigger spiritual meaning. He made a very deep commitment to Jesus later in his life which then propelled me into the kingdom when I saw him kneel before the couch and beg God to save his sons through tears. And one by one, every one of his sons came to Jesus. One took 20-odd years, but they came. And he didn't give us a lot of things, but he gave us the most important thing, and that was Jesus. But he suffered. And being married to a woman with this kind of emotional uh, damage was suffering. He had to do the laundry and cook the meals, and my mom was not well, which was most of my childhood, off and on. He was faithful to her and to our family. A lot of men would have walked out and said, I can't do this. But he stayed, and he was faithful. And he persevered through the suffering. See, he was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. But somehow he knew, deep down inside, there was a bigger purpose to his suffering. As Psalm 23, verse 4 says, Yes, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. My cup overflows. That was his favorite psalm his favorite verse. I remember seeing him read it aloud at the kitchen table. And I'm looking at this grade 8 educated man who only worked for the railway, who had nothing. He died penniless. With a woman and a wife who had struggled with mental illness. And he felt and he talked as though he was the richest man in the world when he read the Bible aloud. When he finally became ill because of his diabetes in the hospital and got an infection in his leg and they had to amputate a toe, his roommate in the semi-private room he was in in Montreal, uh, he got to know really well. This man's 
Half this man's body was taken over by gangrene, and his wife had abandoned him. He was alone. He had no visitors. And my dad would talk to him and visit with him and make sure the nurses took care of him. The nurses would drop off the food, and the man wouldn't eat, and he would feed him spoon by spoon because he saw this man suffering. And one day, the nurse came in. My dad rang the call bell, and the nurse said, it looks like your friend has stopped breathing. The nurse didn't say, it looked like your roommate or the guy in the next bed stopped breathing. The nurse said, it looks like your friend stopped breathing. He was the only friend my, that man, my dad was the only friend that man had. As my dad recounted the story, I was living in Edmonton at the time, he in Montreal where I was born and raised. He said, in that moment, God told me, I told God I'm ready to go anytime you want to take me. Something in that interaction put peace in my dad's heart that if God would take him home to heaven, he was ready. And it seemed odd that my dad would say this after recounting the story that somehow God would come to him and say, I'm ready to take you home any time. And he would say to the Lord, I'm ready to go, Lord, any time you want to take me. I'm thinking, my dad was not terminally ill. He had simply had a toe amputated. And the prognosis was good. He had type 2 diabetes. He was on insulin, or type 1 diabetes, rather. He had insulin injections from the time he was 18, but he was healthy otherwise. I had no reason to believe he was seriously ill and would die. Well, only a matter of weeks later, he died. It's almost as if God told him, I'm getting ready to take you home. And that was a, a precursor to give my dad that peace, somehow. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. My dad was somehow beginning to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And he feared no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And so our culture resists the valley of suffering with all it can. That's an easy sell too, isn't it? To illustrate, the West is about 20% of the global population. So I'm including North America, Europe, any, any non-third world country, so the developed world. Population-wise, the developed world makes up about 20% of the global population. And here's an interesting statistic, and yet we consume 80% of the pills. 80% of the pills that the pharmaceutical industry manufactures are consumed by 20% of the population. We are committed to not suffer. We are committed against the concept of suffering. You want to understand a theology of suffering? You want to understand how faith and, and, and perseverance and reality grapple with suffering, spend time in the third world, brothers and sisters. Not that they're all excited about suffering, but they don't have a lot of options. Right? It presents itself at every turn. Death and suffering are much more frequent and much more regular for them. I see this every time I go to Tanzania. And yet they have a, a way to navigate suffering that we don't. So let's look at the second point. The path to maturity will put us in a place where we will often experience painful disconnection from others. The path to maturity will put us in a place where we will often experience painful disconnection from others. Let's read Psalm, Isaiah 53, 3. Like, this is like, sorry, uh, Psalm 50, sorry, Isaiah 53, rather. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. So here's a question for you, for each of you this morning. What's it like to be one from whom people hide their faces? Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt, even if no one ever knew you felt this way, even if you never said anything about it, but in your own mind, you felt as though you were, you were one from whom people hide their faces? We've all had this experience to some degree or other in some setting, I'm sure. Maybe you've been at a party and everyone seems to ignore you. Maybe there's someone in your family who refuses to recognize you or engage with you or embrace you. You feel like they're hiding their faces from you. You feel like that one from whom people hide their faces. You feel like you don't matter in that setting or that scenario. I felt this way growing up because I was in a school where I was the only one with this color hair. Everybody else had blonde hair or black hair or brown hair, and I would often come home after episodes of taunting or teasing or bullying and saying, Mom, I'm a freak, I'm a weirdo, I'm the only one in my school who looks like me. And she would always counter that with how I was special and God made me that way. But nonetheless, I always felt like I was one from whom people hid their faces. I would get people on the bus in, in Montreal who would sit and gawk, 
point, laugh, ask if I bleached my hair. Kids that would call me snowflake, snowman, snow white, whatever it might be. And then I lived in a neighborhood that was pretty rough, where the, 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 uh, the hustle and bustle of a gang fight, the occasional gunshot was not rare. A lot of families on welfare, some working poor. I had some rough, rough streets that we lived on, on occasion. And then when we would see the ambulance come in the middle of the night because my mom had attempted suicide, and you knew the neighbors saw the ambulance coming to the Ash residence again, and you'd get looks the next morning. They would never ask you anything, but you knew they wondered what was going on. Not having a lot of money growing up. When my other friends would open up their lunch and have the homemade cookies, I didn't have any, because mom wasn't able to do that. It was just the little things that always made me feel like I was one from whom men hid their faces. How many people with obvious physical disabilities graced the cover of Vogue and GQ? Ask yourself that. When was the last time you saw someone missing an arm or a leg or in a wheelchair or the genetic difference graced the cover of Vogue or GQ or some other magazine? How often? Virtually never. You see, you recall in Genesis 3 that one of the primary appeals of the fruit that was presented to Adam and Eve was that it was, quote, pleasing to the eye. Adam and Eve seemed to become transfixed on this. And that coupled with Satan's promise that if they would eat it, they would become like God. It propelled them and all of humankind down a road towards painful disconnection from one another. Might this be why most of the, what I would call, beautiful people, in quotes, seem to exhibit lower levels of maturity? I know that's a sweeping generalization. It's not always true. But more often than not, it's true. And if you want to accuse me of generalizing, guilty as charged. But if you're perfectly honest with yourself, you know there's some truth to what I'm saying. Might it be that the most beautiful people, and I use that term to describe a class of people, seem to exhibit lower levels of maturity, yet these are the people who are held up as models, icons, stars. They are in. If you don't believe me, just look at the entertainment industry. Look at who your kids worship. Look at which concerts they want to go to. Look at which movie stars we want to watch. Not a blemish, not a scar, not a pound of extra weight, not a physical problem in sight, not a genetic difference ever exhibited. Yet look at the fruit of those lives. People are not hiding their faces from them. They are not held in low esteem. But look at the average number of marriages and divorces in Hollywood. It's so many, we joke about it. And it's fodder for tabloid covers. Is this number five or number six? How many attempts at rehab have they had? And these are the beautiful people. The people who we do not hide our faces from. Who we do not consider of low esteem. Broadly speaking, societally speaking. They sell out concert halls. And they make millions. Why? So we can gaze upon them because they are pleasing to the eye. And they are good for food. They offer us the illusion that the world is not broken. That the world is actually looking pretty good. Pretty attractive. And everything is all right. Might it be that's why these shows offer us this illusion? You see, it takes us away from suffering. It takes us away from the fact that we are outside the garden waiting for redemption. And so, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and he was held in low esteem. I went through this in pastoral ministry. For those of, those of you who know me well, you know that I spent 10 years in pastoral work in two different churches. And God blessed and I had a wonderful experience for the most part. And I'm thankful to God for those experiences. I learned a lot, I grew a lot, and I had a chance to minister to others and be ministered to by them. But also part of that story was a great deal of pain and suffering. And sadly to say, at the hands of God's people. Through gossip, through criticism, through unkind words, through untrue words. It was tough on me. To the point where after my second ministry in 10 years, I needed to take a break 
not only from ministry, but from going to church. I couldn't step foot inside a church for years because of what I had seen done amongst God's people. It's been said that Christians are the only people that kill their wounded. In an army, it doesn't work well when you do that, does it? You all know what I'm talking about. If you've been in the church long enough, those of you who are veteran churchgoers, you know what I'm talking about. Don't pretend you don't. You've seen it. What happens in churches and how people treat each other and how they treat the leaders and how they treat the pastors is the dirty little secret we don't like to talk about Sunday morning, right? And I started to expose that. And it took its toll on me. And it took me years to recover to the point where I could actually step foot in another church again. Because it was a place of pain for me. So it was a very painful time. And as I struggled through it, I had at least a taste of maturity at times. I remember when I was a teenager, when I came to Jesus, on the night I was baptized, very few times in my life God has spoken to me this clearly. And this is one of them. There's three or four other times like this. But he, he said to me, literally, as I was coming out of the waters of baptism, I was rising from the waters, I felt him say in my heart, Peter, I want you to go into the ministry. And it was that clear in my head. There was no ambiguity about it. And so the path began. I went to college, and I ministered, and I, I did everything. I propelled my life in that direction. And then when these things happened in the ministry that hurt me and broke me, I said, God, why did you allow this to happen? You called me. I gave everything to you. I ministered in a church way up north where I was paid starvation wages in the middle of nowhere, but people only went to that place for God or money. And it surely wasn't for money that I went there. And I said, God, why? I've given you everything. I've given you myself. I've let go of ambition. I've let go of financial success. Why? And he was strangely silent at times, and I went through this journey where I sought his face and often didn't see it, and, but I persevered. The good news is when you're angry at God, you actually believe in him. When I did marital counseling, I never worried about the couples that fought in front of me. I always worried about the ones that were indifferent in front of me. Indifference is, hate is not the opposite of love, indifference is. When a couple said, I don't care, and they don't talk, it's pretty much done. When they're actually having a fight, there's still something going on. They're still trying to make something right, right? They still care enough to be hurt. And so when you're angry at God, you care enough and you're trying to make things right with him. You're trying to get back in that place of relationship with him. You're trying to position yourself, and maybe even manipulatively trying to position God to come through for you. But there's a relationship. I would that you were hot or cold if you are what? Lukewarm. Indifferent. Revelation says, I will then do what? Spit you out of my mouth. So I would that you were angry at me, or, in, or passionately in love with me, but I would not want you to be indifferent toward me. Because that has to go out of my mouth. So here's a quote that I picked up years ago that illustrates the point well, and it certainly was true in my life. Unless a man or a woman has been broken by God, they cannot be trusted with power. Unless a man or woman is broken by God, they cannot be trusted with power. Move to our third and final point. The path to maturity will cause us to experience God himself as painfully distant in our greatest hours of need. And I just touched on this at the end of the last point. But the path of maturity will cause you to experience God himself as painfully distant in your greatest hours of need. Have you ever experienced that? Anybody here? Experienced God as painfully distant? Most, when you mostly needed him? When you were desperate to feel him, to hear him? to know him, to have some concrete response from him, and yet he seems further away than you had hoped. It's part of our journey for every believer. It's part of the, the walk. We've all been there, and we'll all go there again at some point. Matthew 27, 45 makes the point, and by the way, Matthew 27 really is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, as is similar passages in the Gospels, but Matthew is writing to Jewish believers, and so he does a good job of showing us and tracing back to the prophetic prophecies of Messiah how they were fulfilled in the person of Jesus, or Yeshua, as the Jewish people would call him. And so in Matthew 27, he, he keeps going back. The experiences and the way they're described keep giving remnants and ideas of Isaiah 53. And here in Matthew 27, 45, we read, Darkness came over the land. Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Here is the Son of God, God's one and only Son, sent to earth for our redemption, for our salvation. And he himself is experiencing separation from God. Yes, theologically, we can put that to bed by saying, well, the reason he felt that was because he wasn't a sinner, he had no sin, he took all of our sins on him, his whole body became sin, and the reason he felt separated was because he was full of sin, because he was a propitiation of our sins, and that's what this quote's all about. That neatly theologically tucks it all away. So the only reason Jesus said, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me, is because for the first time in his life, this sinless God-man had sin. And that sin separated him from God the Father, and therefore he had separation instantly, and he got fed up with it, and he said this. That's how all the theologians explain this. I read all the books. I took a four-year degree in theology, and it's all true. But it's not the complete truth. That's not an untrue statement. Jesus did become sin for us. The scripture tells us that. And it tells us that God cannot coexist with sin. And no doubt, the fact that Jesus became sin for us on the cross did have something to do with his experience of separation from God the Father. But to leave the explanation there is to miss so much of the story. In Jesus' deepest hour of suffering, when his closest friends betrayed him, literally denied him over and over again, when the very people he shed his blood for laughed and mocked or were indifferent and walked away as though he was another random criminal hanging on a cross, when there was no one to be found who loved him, Jesus suffered the most. And then if he got past all of the disappointment because he was 100% man, my Bible tells me, if he got past all of those disappointments, who did he have left? Who was his best friend? God the Father. At least I can go there, he would think. And he does. In all of the physical pain of torture that he had gone through in his body, in all of the emotional pain of the rejection of his friends, through that whole process, he's now left with one person he can rely on, his father his heavenly father, who he had existed with in eternity past before he occupied human flesh for 33 years and would later return to be with the other members of the Trinity, the triune God. But in this moment, as he turns to the only one he can think of, what does he find? My God. My God. My Father. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? Give yourself permission, friends, brothers and sisters, to feel that. Because Jesus did. You're in really good company. It's okay. When you feel he's far from helping you, when he's far from the voice of your cries, as the psalmist says, it's okay. God's big enough to handle all that. Just like he was big enough for Jesus in that moment. And this one here is a bit difficult for me, but I'll share it as a personal story as I wind up my thoughts. I told you of my 10 years in ministry. In my first five years, I was in a church in northern Manitoba, 150 miles south of the Hudson's Bay, where the polar bears are, in the middle of nowhere. I mean in the middle of nowhere. You're talking a guy from inner city Montreal, a city boy, going there. It was 50 below, and that's not exaggerating. It was, got down to minus 57 one winter when we had our Santa Claus parade as a church. And there was three churches in town, a Catholic church, an Anglican church, and one evangelical church that I went to pastor. This was my first ministry assignment. You're taking an inner city boy, and you're putting him there. And I was just silly enough to say yes to the first opportunity that came along. They couldn't find a pastor for a few years. I learned later why. And the longest anyone ever lasted in that church was three and a half years. It was a mission church. And I went up there full of vim, vigor, and vitality and enthusiasm to do all kinds of things as an idealistic theological college graduate. And I remember well the night I arrived uh, on the train. I was married then, previously. Um, and I'll tell you about that in just a moment to my first wife. And I remember arriving, I think it was mid-January, the coldest month of the year. I don't know why in the world we ended up moving then, but that's when they wanted a pastor. And uh, I went there. And uh, I got off the train, and I think that, my, that night it was like minus 50 or 51 or something. 
and it's pitch black, and one of the deacons pulls up in his car, and there's, you can see your breath, you know, and I get in his car, and he brings me to this trailer at the end of town that they tell me I'm living in. It's got frost on the inside of the windows. And the church ladies were kind enough to put casseroles in the fridge, and very gracious people, tiny little mission church. And as I'm getting ready for bed that night, he drops us off, and I'm getting ready for bed, and I hear this howling noise outside my window. Oh, oh, I'm thinking, that's weird. We don't have those in Montreal. What's that? And later, a couple of days later, I found out that my trailer was at the edge of town, and there was train tracks behind it, and the timber wolves go up and down the train tracks. There was wolves not far from my backyard howling. And anyway, I, the next day, I came to the conclusion, as I went to bed that night, I said, Lord, there would only be two reasons people would come here. It would be either for God or money, because everyone else was there for Manitoba Hydro, and they made a lot of money by being relocated there. They got a northern allowance. I got no such allowance. But I felt he had called me. And I went there, and I learned a lot, and uh, it was a great time. But it was also a, pa a painful time, because at the end of my five years there, remember I said nobody had lasted more than three and a half? It was my personal goal to beat that. And I lasted five. And th that record's never been broken since then, from what I know. And uh, my wife left me. She walked out of me. She said, I'm done with you and your God, and I'm out of here. It's a long and complicated story, which I won't tell today, except to say, it rocked my world. It destroyed me. And it was completely out of the blue. I had no idea it was coming. We had our struggles. We had our challenges. She claimed to know Jesus. I think she did. But she had deep, deep wounds from her very dysfunctional upbringing that overtook her, that she was unable to deal with, and she decided marriage was not for her anymore. And here I am in the middle of nowhere with this small mission church. I've given my whole life to God from the time I was a teenager. I prevailed through all of those things with his help, and now all of a sudden, the woman who I thought I loved leaves me and says, I'm done with you and your God. It was like a dagger through my soul. I didn't know what to do with myself. The church was gracious and kind and patient, and I eventually decided I needed a break, and I moved and finished my master's degree, and so the story continues for many more years to God bless me, uh, and De Debbie and I met and married, and uh, God blessed me in so many ways in my life after that. But I guess I want to tell you that through that experience, I came to understand something about God. That he is always good, but he's never safe. And I had a lot of anger with him. I felt abandoned by him. I'm thinking, God, I gave you everything. I'm in the middle of nowhere, taking an assignment most people never took. The missions and denominations, I was, I was joked when I was part of the Baptists of Western Canada that I noticed a pattern in our denomination that as pastors got older, around 55, the Lord tended to lead them to BC. <laughs> and when they were really young, the Lord tended to lead them to these small uh, mission locations. That's just how God leads, you know. It's funny, I'd always talk to these guys at pastoral conferences when I was up there, and they'd say, well, you know, and they'd say, well, you know, I mean, you know, the Lord's been opening up an opportunity for us to minister in Parksville. And I would look at the guy, and he's 60. Okay, that's interesting how God seems to need 60-year-olds in Parksville and 20-year-olds in Gillum, Manitoba. But God knows what he's doing. And so I said, God, why have you allowed this to happen? And I got no answer. And I encountered unrelenting expectations of people of God. It seemed like no matter how much I gave and no matter how much I served, it was never enough for some people. Those of you who have been in ministry know what I'm talking about. It seemed like it was never enough. No matter how much of my time and my love and my effort and my prayers I sacrificed for some people, it was never enough. And where was God in the middle of all this, who had so clearly called me so strongly as a teenager? I wondered, I wondered, and I wondered. Have you ex ever experienced this? Questions that bubble up from your soul that remain unanswered? Has darkness come over the land of your life at some point where you felt he had forsaken you? Remember what Matthew 27, 45 says. Darkness came over all the land. Has darkness at some point in your past or in your present come over the land of your life, of your family, of your marriage? And have you then cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? I think if you're honest with yourself, you could easily say yes. And so the question is not whether we will have suffering or not. That We don't get to have that option. The question is, what do we do with it when it happens? Remember I said you can tell someone's priorities by what they do with their time, their money, and how they navigate suffering. 
Because the option is not there to not have suffering. So since it's there, it's how we navigate that suffering. So our final slide. In summary, our loving God is much more committed to our maturity than to our comfort. I don't think you'll ever ask me to speak here again, right? After a statement like that. I'm not telling you lies, brothers and sisters. I'm telling you the truth. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulations. And so he is much more committed to your maturity than your comfort. Those of you who are parents, which is a lot of people here at Jericho, if you're a good parent and you really want to raise a responsible child, what are you most committed to? That they're always happy and get what they want? Is that the end goal? That your kid will always be happy and get everything he wants? So that he'll always report back that he likes you and likes everything you do? No. Your goal is to raise a mature, successful adult. That's the end game, right? That's what we're all striving for. We succeed to varying degrees. But that's our goal, regardless of how well we feel you succeed at it. And if you give your kid everything they want all the time, and you're pri primarily and only concerned about their comfort at all times, well, you know what kind of child you produce. And God, our Heavenly Father, says we are, in the Greek New Testament, the tekna, or the children. And the word tekna is actually like the toddlers of God. I almost like to do my own paraphrase of the New Testament. And I would call, when he says children of God, I'd like to say infants or toddlers of God. Think about that imagery. Like we're not called the mature teenagers of God or the young adults of God. The word children is of a young child. So when he says children of God, we've lost what that really means. We just think it's this relationship where he's the father and we're subservient to him and we're you know, created by him, which is true. But particularly, we are the young, immature children of God. All of us, right? And so God has this whole bunch of toddlers to deal with a bunch of young kids, and we're screaming, I want it this way, I want it now. I want that chocolate bar at the checkout. And he says no. Sometimes he says yes, just like parents do. Sometimes he gives us the stuff we want and, get, and we'd scream for. Other times he says no, for reasons that are completely bewildering to us when he says no. Just like the four-year-old's completely bewildered why you don't buy him Cocoa Puffs and you insist on shreddies. God says no. I'm going to give you this instead. And we don't get it most of the time because we are the techna, the young toddlers of God. We're not mature enough to get why he's doing what he's doing. Our loving God is much more committed to our maturity than to our comfort. He is here today and ready to meet you. And as I close, I want you to think with me about Psalm 23. And this was, as I said earlier, my dad's favorite scripture. You've all heard this psalm before, but listen to it. And let it sink in in the context of God meeting you in your area of struggle, your area of pain, your area of suffering. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Is he your shepherd? Say it in your heart with me. Can you say it aloud? The Lord is my shepherd. Let's say it together. The Lord is my shepherd. Emphasis on mine. The Lord is my shepherd. Is he your shepherd today? I lack nothing. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He restores. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, my suffering, my pain. In the middle of that pain, God is preparing a table, a banquet, a feast for you. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is the promise, brothers and sisters. One day we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And there will be no more suffering, and there will be no more pain, but until then we have to navigate this suffering. Until that day, when there is no more suffering, and no more crying, and no more tears, we have to navigate it. Because it is the crucible by which we will attain kingdom maturity. Over the last months, those of you who know us well, and those of you on the prayer chain have known that we've been praying a great deal and concerned a great deal about uh, my father-in-law, Debbie's dad, Jerry. And he's been diagnosed with terminal bone cancer. He had prostate cancer that came back, and he's been suffering, and the doctors have indicated there's no more treatment, 
No more chemotherapy that can do anything for him. He's 79. And he's in immense pain. The only drug strong enough to touch his pain is fentanyl on a patch delivered 24 hours a day. And even that has to be increased from time to time. On top of that, he has dementia. So he's losing his ability to think and communicate well with his family. This is a man who is familiar with suffering. Every day he experiences it. And Daddy has sent eight hours a day by his bedside for months. That's why she's always away in Winnipeg. And that's why I'm back and forth. Because we know the one commodity Jerry has left is time. Three to six months to live is what the doctor said. So we want to enjoy every day we can with him. But he is a man familiar with suffering and grief and sorrow. He's losing everything. He's losing his mind. He's losing his body. And we prayed and desired that in the middle of that, the one thing he would not lose is communication with God. And so we had a chance to pray with him. And he came to know Jesus recently. And we didn't know if his mind would be clear enough, but we're pretty convinced it is because the other day when we had to leave his apartment, he asked me if I would pray with him. And we did. So it's clear to me in Jerry's life that he's going to guide him through paths of righteousness. And this is his verse, obviously, like it was for my father. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, or some translations say, the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, the enemies of pain and suffering and loss. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows, and surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And here's the promise, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What more could we want? So the suffering seems bad. The suffering in your life, past, present, and future, seems insurmountable at times, but please keep it in the bigger picture of the fact that there's a table in front of you and there's a home where there will be no more suffering that's being prepared for you. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. So today as I close, I want to give you an opportunity to respond. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer about suffering. Because we know that that second path that second journey we take is a tough one times. But we have a gracious and kind God who is a balm of healing, who is a source of hope, and who offers us eternal life. And some of you may be gathered here today and you don't know Jesus. You don't have that confidence that if you were to die today, you'd be with him in heaven. You're not sure. You think maybe, if I'm good enough, maybe, I'm not sure. Well, you don't need to leave here with maybe. You can leave here with absolute certainty that you're in Jesus' hands today, and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How does that happen? By a simple prayer. Say, God of healing, come and touch me in my suffering. Come and make me new, make me whole. I'm going to lead you in that prayer in a moment. There's those of you today who've walked with Jesus for many years, but you've never really learned how to navigate suffering. You've run away from it. Or maybe you're wallowing in it and you're bitter. Or maybe God is really distant today because you're still angry at him about how he's not shown up in your suffering. I don't know where your heart's at, but I do know that each one of you have been touched by suffering here today. Regardless, I know that. And so we're going to talk about bringing our hearts to God now and asking him to touch us in the middle of this suffering because this is where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? Where God is committed to our maturity instead of our comfort. And so if you want to be one of those people who says to God today, God, I want to be committed to maturity. And that's going to mean that the kingdom maturity that I want in my life the personal maturity I want in my life will come through the crucible of suffering, and I want to offer myself to you to suffer well. You know there's a way of suffering well. It sounds strange, but the third world learns that more than the first world. Our society is committed to removing every element of possible suffering so far away from us that we never have to deal with suffering. There's a pill for it. There's a distraction for it. There's an addiction for it. But suffering will still sneak in no matter how hard we try and run away. And so let's pray together today about that. And if you want prayer after the service, there are people who will pray with you about this. But I'm going to ask you to pray now, and let's talk to God about this. Lord Jesus, today we come to you because we live in a world where suffering is part of reality. We live in a world where suffering is something we all have to face. And some of us may be here today who've never gotten to know you. Maybe some of us have never met you, the great healer. I've never taken the moment, the time, to actually say, Lord, 
Come into my life. Make me new. Make me whole. Maybe there are people who have never made that decision. And if you're here today, friend, and you've never said, Jesus, I've never actually taken the effort to invite you into my life. I've never taken the effort to say, I am lost, I am broken, I am a sinner. I am suffering. I know I have suffered. Maybe something happened in my childhood, something's happening in my marriage, something's happening in my heart. Maybe it's physical pain, maybe it's psychological pain. But there's suffering that's been part of my story. And I've not known what to do with it, but today I've learned there's a God who loves me. And a God who wants to touch me and walk with me and hold my hand in the middle of my suffering. And so if you've never really had that personal connection to this God, today I want you to pray with me this prayer as you're seated where you are. Lord Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Cause me to know you. I give you my suffering, I give you my pain, I give you my brokenness, I give you my sin, and I ask you to come into my life for the very first time and to make me your daughter or your son through the forgiveness that your blood and your death and your resurrection only can provide. Amen. And for those of you who are here today who've walked with Jesus for maybe a month, maybe 50 years, however long it's been, but you've struggled to navigate suffering well, and you've run away from it, You've been angry with him at it. You haven't understood how it played a role in your maturity. And you want to say to him today, Lord, I want to suffer well. I want suffering that is inevitably going to be part of my journey to draw me to you and not away from you. I want it to make me better and not bitter in my relationship with you. And Lord, I confess my bitterness to you. I confess my commitment to run away from suffering to you. I confess my commitment to comfort instead of maturity, to you, Lord Jesus. I'm your son or your daughter, but I'm more considered and more focused on medicating my pain than I am getting to know you in the middle of it all. And that's my brokenness today that I confess. Maybe some of you are in that place today. You want to meet him in this hour of suffering. Maybe you're carrying some wounds of suffering in this service today. Something going on in your life right now and you're with your children or with your marriage or your job or your finances or physical pain or psychological pain. I don't know what it is, but Jesus, you know what it is. And come now and visit each person in this place, Lord Jesus. Come by your Holy Spirit and touch each heart. Go up and down each row of chairs because no one is invisible to you. There is no one here that you will hide your face from. Oh, we'll try and hide our faces from you, but you'll never try and hide your face from us. You see us and you take delight in us even when we don't feel delightful. You want to know us. You are in love with us, Lord Jesus. You want to embrace us and hold us firmly like a father holds a wounded child and says, it's okay. My arms are strong enough and tender enough and you'll be okay because I'll take care of you in your suffering. You will not be alone because yes, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age, you'll never be abandoned. And so believe that, my friends, he will never abandon you. He's here to meet you right now today and to forgive you your sins and to bring you healing if you would only ask him.